Hello, and welcome to another episode of Dr. J's Shakespeare. I'm Dr. J. Today's episode looks at a scene from Shakespeare's Julius Caesar. When first performed in 1599, Julius Caesar gave its audience nothing new in terms of information. Playgoers then knew the story of Caesar's assassination in Rome on the Ides of March, as well as moviegoers today know the story of Lincoln's assassination while attending a performance at Ford's Theater in Washington. What Julius Caesar did give its audience was great pleasure, pleasure in its portrayal of the familiar events, pleasure in its multifaceted, clear yet ambiguous conceptions of the characters and their motivations, pleasure in Shakespeare's rich, vivid language. An additional pleasure arises from the audience's experience of irony, the experience of irony that comes from the audience knowing what's going to happen when the characters they are watching do not. When a crazy street person confronts Caesar barely a hundred lines into the play to warn him to beware of the Ides of March, that is, the 15th of March, the viewer's visceral reaction is almost physical when Caesar brushes him aside as a dreamer. This visceral, ironic pleasure, combined with a tangible sense of foreboding and the thrill of Shakespeare's language, permeates the scene I've chosen for today. It is the night before the assassination, almost morning, and Caesar is restless about the coming day. It has been a stormy night, and Calpurnia, his wife, has been talking of his murder in her sleep. Caesar sends his servant to his own priestly augurers to see what they have to say about the coming day. Calpurnia appears and asks Caesar not to go to the Senate house this day, telling him of the apparitions the watch has seen during the night. A lioness has brought forth young in the streets of Rome. Clouds have rained blood on the capital, and much more. The servant returns to report that the priests say that Caesar should stay home, as they found no heart in the entrails they studied. Caesar turns these warnings aside, saying he won't be a coward. He picks up the image of the lion and turns it to his own purpose, saying that he and danger are two lions born together, but that he was born first, and as the elder has no reason to fear danger. We listen, knowing that Caesar is wrong and is speeding to his own death, only to then have him turn and say he will stay home after all. But we know somehow this won't be true. Let's listen. From Julius Caesar by William Shakespeare Act 2, Scene 2 Caesar's House Thunder and lightning enter Julius Caesar in his nightgown. Caesar nor heaven nor earth have been at peace tonight. Thrice hath Calpurnia in her sleep cried out, Help, ho, they murder Caesar. Who's within? Enter a servant. Servant. My lord? Caesar. Go bid the priest do present sacrifice and bring me their opinions of success. 
Servant, I will, my lord. Exit. Enter Calpurnia. Calpurnia. What mean you, Caesar? Think you to walk forth? You shall not stir out of your house today. Caesar. Caesar shall forth. The things that threatened me ne'er looked but on my back. When they shall see the face of Caesar, they are vanished. Calpurnia. Caesar, I never stood on ceremonies, but now they frighten me. There is one within, besides the things that we have heard and seen, recounts most horrid sights seen by the watch. A lioness hath whelped in the streets, and graves have yawned and yielded up their dead. Fierce fiery warriors fought upon the clouds, in ranks and squadrons and right form of war, which drizzled blood upon the capital. The noise of battle hurtled in the air, horses did neigh and dying men did groan, and ghosts did shriek and squeal about the streets. O Caesar, these things are beyond all use, and I do fear them. Caesar, what can be avoided whose end is purposed by the mighty gods? Yes, Caesar shall go forth, for these predictions are to the world in general as to Caesar. Calpurnia. When beggars die, there are no comets seen. The heavens themselves blaze forth the death of princes. Caesar. Cowards die many times before their deaths. The valiant never taste of death but once. Of all the wonders that I yet have heard, it seems to me most strange that men should fear, seeing that death, a necessary end, will come when it will come. Enter the servant. Caesar. What say the augurers? Servant. They would not have you stir forth today. Plucking the entrails of an offering forth, they could not find a heart within the beast. Caesar. The gods do this in shame of cowardice. Caesar should be a beast without a heart if he should stay at home today for fear. No, Caesar shall not. Danger knows full well that Caesar is more dangerous than he. We are two lions littered in one day, and I the elder and more terrible. And Caesar shall go forth. Calpurnia. Alas, my lord, your wisdom is consumed in confidence. Do not go forth today. Call it my fear that keeps you in the house and not your own. We'll send Mark Antony to the Senate house, and he shall say you are not well today. Let me upon my knee prevail in this. Caesar. Mark Antony shall say I am not well, and for thy humor, I will stay at home. When companies put on productions of Shakespeare's plays, they have to make many decisions they might not have to for a more modern play. What costumes should the actors wear, for instance? Should they wear Elizabethan dress? The original performers probably did, but because that's what everybody wore then. In that spirit, actors today would wear what everyone wears today, that is, modern dress, 
which some productions choose instead of Elizabethan dress. For Julius Caesar, another option is not only available, but obvious. The actors can wear the Roman dress of the time the play is set, that is, togas, etc. Such costumes, though, run the risk of dulling the senses and thus the audience's responsiveness, as togas are just pretty much white sheets. Another choice is to dress the actors in the dress of a particular historical time, but not Caesar's time. This can make the play seem more relevant. Orson Welles in 1937 used costumes suggestive of fascist Italy and gave Caesar the recognizable mannerisms of Mussolini. Other productions since have made similar choices, modeling Caesar after a historical figure or historical type who threatens democratic society with dictatorial rule. But the scene we've just listened to shows the difficulty of such an approach. Caesar here is quite human, appearing in a nightgown and fretting over his wife's dreams. He appears philosophical one moment and spirited the next, and it's difficult not to admire him. Cowards die many times before their deaths, he declares. The valiant never taste death but once, and we know this is true. We want in some measure for that truth to guide our lives. Is this a line, then, that we want to give to one we despise? Can we despise someone who not only says this, but lives and dies by it? When we listen as Caesar declares that he and danger are two lions born together, but that he is the older and thus the stronger, we see the egotism and feel the irony. But there is the tinge of tragedy as well. Yes, Caesar must die, but do we then make a hero of Cassius, whose underhanded manipulative plotting brings Caesar's death about? And why do we regret the part that Brutus plays in the assassination if Caesar's death is necessary? Or do we accept, resignedly, that yes, Caesar must die, and so must Brutus, though for quite different reasons? Julius Caesar the play involves us deeply in its politics and its ethics, but it doesn't tell us what's wrong and what's right, nor should it. Shakespeare's Julius Caesar, like all his plays and like all art, is something we experience. That experience changes us, but in what way each one of us only can say, and we can't even entirely say that. Until next time, I'm Dr. J.